Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space to Grow, a podcast focused on what it will take to sustainably develop our rapidly growing space economy. This is Chris Blackerby coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. Hi, and this is Charity Whedon in D.C., Washington, D.C., and we have such a treat for listeners for this episode, Chris. He is a respected leader, an astronaut and shuttle commander, and a retired Marine Corps general. Yes, and I think he would say that his more important titles are father, husband, grandfather, and he wouldn't say this about himself, but we can vouch for the fact that he's just an incredible person. Uh, It's none other than former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden. The one and only, yes. Uh, Charlie's going to talk to us uh, about his career, some lessons learned along the way, the value of partnerships, and what he thinks needs to be done to keep space sustainable for future explorers. Yeah, something that we at Astroscale are very interested in seeing happen. Um, we've got so much to learn from Charlie. Uh, he And we're so honored to have him on the podcast. Uh, you know, his bio alone charity could probably take us a couple minutes to go through all of the details. But uh, highlights, uh, for those who don't know, Charlie was uh, NASA's 12th administrator. Uh, he spent seven years uh, as the NASA administrator. Uh, he also was a NASA astronaut joining the Corps in 1980, uh, flying on four flights, two as commander, including to the Hubble Space Telescope to repair it. He was uh, a Marine Corps general for over 30 years. He lived in Japan as deputy commander of the U.S. Forces Japan. Basically, he's a guy who can tell us a lot about uh, what it's like to have uh, seen the space industry grow up uh, and uh, and has played such a role in so many aspects. It was a really fun conversation. Absolutely. Are you ready to go? Yeah. So, we're going to hear it. He's going to talk about diversity and future exploration and on-orbit servicing and earth science and basketball and, you know, we cover a few topics. So, ready to do it, Charity? Let's do it. Three, two, two one. one. Launch. Launch it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, that was cool. That's great. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Today's guest, I'm, I'm really honored uh, to have on my former boss's boss here. <laughs> um, and so, I had, the, I had the pleasure of joining uh, Charlie on trips around the world. We have with us uh, Charlie Bolden, former NASA administrator. Uh, Charlie, welcome to Space to Grow. Well, it's good to be here. Good to talk to you and, uh, and to meet Charity and others that I have not met virtually, but good to be here. Charity, did you want to say a quick hi? Oh, well, you know, I, I am nervous. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out why. I don't get it. Why are you nervous? I mean, this is just, you do this every day, Charity. I do this around all astronauts. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh. It's just, it's just oh. how I am. We're, well, Chris will tell you, um, I'm a lousy basketball player. Uh, I get in my pants one leg at a time. Uh, I can say <laughs> stupid things, and other than that, I'm just a downright normal guy. Awesome. I, I don't know about the lousy basketball player. I recall some victories over Marines in Hanoi and, and Bangkok. But that, that was uh, because of you. You're the, you're the <laughs> real basketball player. I, I'm going to record that part. We're going to put that on the intro. That's okay, right. Charity, that, and uh, and, and yeah. Obi is looking down on us, so he will attest to that. He is, and uh, nice to bring up uh, Michael Bryan, our former boss, who passed away a couple of years ago, my former boss, but a great guy. Uh, and we had a lot of fun in the basketball courts around Asia. So 
Um, Charlie, uh, it's always so great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I, I sent you a few uh, questions and, and uh, topics ahead of time. And I didn't and read them. Good. I, good. I, I hate Excellent. I hate getting stuff. I didn't tell anybody, but I hate getting stuff ahead of time because I wanted to be spontaneous and be able to oh, say good. stupid things. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I yeah. like that. We were just talking about whether we should ask you a few questions. So I think the answer to that is yes, Charity. We ask all of them and oh, see what wonderful. happens. I'm looking forward um, to it. So, uh, but one of the things, you know, to start off chronologically, Charlie, um, I don't want to get talking too much about your, your background. I know you get these questions all the time about, you know, what's your inspiration and, and what got you to where you are. Uh, you always say, you said it on, I've heard it in person. I've heard it on interviews, podcasts and things that it, it, it takes a bunch of people to get to where you are. You were lucky to get to where you are because of all the support you had. But I want to ask a, a different way here uh, for two questions. First, for any younger listeners, how, how to position yourself to get lucky. Like, what can you do to make sure you put yourself in that position to achieve what you want to achieve? And then for the adults, what can we all do to create a support system that helps to foster that younger generation? And so, you know, if you can maybe answer those two questions, weaving in some uh, some past examples of your life, that'd be a great way to kick it off. Yeah, let me go with the adults first, because uh, the second part, the young people, um, if you're very fortunate the way I was and you're born with an, in, an incredible set of parents, then you're, you're a leg up on everybody else right away. And I was like that. Um, my mom and dad were absolutely incredible parents. They were both school teachers. Um, I tell people all the time, I learned more about leadership and, um, and everything else around my dinner table uh, because they were the people that taught me that um, you know, you've really got to study hard and work hard if you want to attain anything uh, that you think you desire. But most importantly, you can't be afraid of failing. You can't let other people tell you that you can't do something because of your size or your color or anything else. Um, so that's the thing that, that parents can do is really encourage their kids, uh, support them good or bad, and um, tell them when they're wrong, but, but always praise them publicly if you if you can when they're right uh, you play an incredibly key role we my wife and I are blessed to have two absolutely superb I still call them kids although my my son has three daughters of his own he's uh, has a junior in college at Virginia Tech and a senior in high school a freshman in high school and um, and our daughter is a very successful plastic surgeon but that was because they had a great mom and uh, every once in a while when I showed up from some deployment overseas or something, I tried to be a good dad and, and, and be out and support them in the things that they were doing. For the kids, um, like I said, if you're fortunate enough as I was, then you allow yourself to fall into things. If you're not and you have to do a lot on your own, study really hard. Uh, same three things, as a matter of fact. Study really hard. Don't, um, don't cheat yourself um, by not applying every ounce of effort you can in the classroom. Uh, and that's the part that I think that's what work hard means. You wouldn't think about trying to be a, a, a good football player or a good basketball player or even a good singer or dancer without practice. And that's essentially what the classroom is. It allows you to practice to become good at whatever area of expertise you, you to, to which you aspire. And then the final one is don't be afraid of failure. Um, be a risk taker, but but take smart risk. Make sure you understand 
what's involved and then go for it. So those would be the things I would tell parents and, and kids. I love it, Charity. I want you to follow up, but I do want to say one thing. My daughter, I have two daughters and my older one still has a signed picture of Charlie Bolden in her room that says, study hard and listen to your parents. Nice. <laughs> Great <laughs> advice. <laughs> I, you know, Charlie, I just wanted to bring one thing up. I have a newfound appreciation for teachers, um, especially this year with my two kids learning from home. And so just wanted to give a shout out to all those teachers doing an amazing job out there. Uh, really do appreciate what you do. Um, I, I join you in, in passing along that congratulations yeah. and that thanks. Yeah. Um, and, and just kind of following up on, you know, supporting kids and letting them find their own path. And, um, you know, it's, you know, trying you know, with my two kids, I'm trying to find, you know, what inspires them, what's that spark. And then to, to help that come out and, and give them all the opportunities that I can. And uh, last night, my son wanted to stay up. And I said, well, you have to watch something, you know, calm on TV. And so he, <laughs> he chose Cosmos. And I'm like, go for it. Do it. <laughs> I, I will let you stay Good up choice. <laughs> to watch Cosmos. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's also, uh, it can be a challenge for kids, especially these days and in these times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Charity, one, one thing I'll, I'll say about what you just, you said something really, really, really important, I think, and that's giving them the room to go for it, to, 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 to find themselves. You know, my, my baby granddaughter, who's a freshman in high school, um, is, uh, she's a good soccer player. She's a great student. Uh, she is a phenomenal cook and she loves to bake. And she thinks I'm kidding all the time, but, but I try to tell her, you know, if that's your passion and, and you want to, I'll send you to culinary school if that's what you choose you want to do, because, yep. you know, that's like a college education and then you got a job when you come out. So I, I agree with you. You know, we I encourage kids to follow their passion all the time and then hope that that some of them will find that they really do have a penchant for science and math and engineering. But uh, but as Chris will tell you in NASA, um, we have a need for every single every every profession imaginable you know we've got to have cooks and nutritions and doctors and dentists and and attorneys and and administrative specialists and people who pay you and all that stuff so encourage them to do what they what they what they feel their their passion is love it yeah i love the fact that there is room for everyone at nasa and in the space community at that and kind of brings me to the you know our next question of you know, Artemis and Artemis is going to, you know, put the first woman on the moon. And that's really exciting for someone like me and for the entire space community, I imagine, and, and the public. Um, and under your tenure as administrator, you, you know, could you tell us some of the important lessons on diversity and inclusion in space, not just gender, but like you said, in, in backgrounds, nationality, ethnicity, and so on? Yeah, I, I think um, things that I learned through through my life, actually, but um, again, from my parents, because they were, my mother especially was very active in the civil rights era, She, even though she was a teacher. I grew up in segregated some Columbia, South Carolina, and as, uh, you know, in the 60s, as the South began to explode um, under the strain of, of integration and the like, my, my mom, along with some other parents, 
mostly teachers, decided that they really didn't want to go, didn't want to see South Carolina go the way that many of the other southern states had with a lot of violence and everything. And so they formed something called the South Carolina Human Relations Council. And it, what it did was it brought in diverse voices and ideas and people who might not even have agreed that integration was the right thing to do, but they, they, they were willing to admit that it was inevitable and they wanted to find how we could go about bringing it into being uh, and save our communities. And, and that was a, that was a lesson in diversity, not of race or anything except a diversity of ideas to see how good you could be. And I, um, I have learned that all the way up when I went to the Naval Academy, and, uh, but particularly in the Marine Corps. I, I learned that when you're putting together a, a plan, whether it's a war plan or any kind of campaign plan, it really behooves you to try to hear as many voices, as many disparate voices as you can, particularly those who may not think the plan is good for one reason or another, because they may see something that, that you don't see. And it's through those disparate voices that you end up with a, with a much better idea than you would have had if all you depended on was people who look like you, think like you, act like you, and come from the same cultural background as you. So, so when I talk about diversity all the time, I'm talking about diversity of thought and diversity of cultural background and, and everything, not just race and gender. That's so true. Do you, do you think NASA and the space community um, have more room to grow here in diversity and inclusion of these oh, different parts? Without a, without a doubt. Um, I think we're great. Um, we, we have gotten good at accepting diversity of thought. You know, when we started forming international partnerships, um, Chris will tell you this, we found that uh, most people don't think technically the way we do in the United States. And we have our own customs and mores and standards and everything that we, we used to insist on following. But when we took time to listen to our partners, for example, the people from JAXA or from the European Space Agency, or heaven forbid, the Russians, um, we learned that, hey, you know, they've got some pretty good ideas. And the way that they do stuff, particularly when it came to crew operations and the like, the, the Russians were pretty sharp because they had been doing it for much longer than anybody else in the world. Uh, you know, they had, they had flown longer flights and had been actually flying longer consistently by the time we got around to the shuttle program. And um, so we found that if, if we made room to listen to other people's ideas, uh, we probably were going to be much, much better. Where NASA has a long way to go, and almost all organizations in the United States is in the area, unfortunately, of, of racial and, and gender diversity. And, um, and I think that's just because of the underlying uh, history of our nation where, um, you know, it was founded and, and the only ideas expressed were those of white men. And, um, and that was sort of what we followed. And, we tend to forget, um, I, I carry a little copy of the Constitution around with me. I know you, I know you all are over there in, in Tokyo, but um, I always look at it. President Obama used to talk about it a lot, but it, the preamble to the Constitution, uh, there, there are a couple of words in it, which, which says, um, in order to form a more perfect union, that statement alone means that we're not there yet, that, that there's a lot of room to grow. We don't think we're 
we're the perfect union or the perfect place, but we think we can get there. And if we ever get there, maybe they'll change the preamble to the Constitution. But right now, the, 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 the document that is the foundational idea of this country, this great experiment that we call the United States, um, it admits that we're, we're not a perfect place. And there's a lot of room for us to grow. And, and a lot of that room is in um, talking about how we started as a, as a slave nation and a slave state and how we best get away from that and, and, uh, and afford opportunities, equal opportunities to everybody um, and how we establish practices of what I call equity, where you allow people who, who were held down for so long uh, to have at least a fair chance of, of catching up. And sometimes that means kind of jumping them over other people to bring them up to the same level as everybody else. Yeah. And, and it's, boy, it's such a great conversation. And, you know, it was encapsulated. I know we all saw the oh. the poet uh, oh. Amanda oh, Gorman yeah. in the inauguration. I mean, that, 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 that poem in, in the, the, you know, the poem she did basically is, is what you were saying, Charlie. I mean, yeah. we're, yeah. we're striving as a country and, and we're taking steps and maybe it's two steps up, one step back, yeah. we're, but we're, we're moving. Uh, and, and that, that's basically, I think what you were just saying, it's what she yeah. said uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week. So it's, it's, it's great to see that, that there is some steps and some recognition, um, that there's a ways to go. And we're, we're all, we're all uh, as a country, as people. Now, I, I, a quick progress. question, you know, <laughs> in, in about your audience, Chris, is, is it, um, is yeah. it all uh, an English speaking audience or is it all over Japan or all over the world or wh what do you target? Wh where do you hope to be eventually? Globally, globally. We want to see this go everywhere, Charlie. And I mean, we, the, one of the reasons that we're, we're doing this the way we're doing it with me in Tokyo, charity in DC, uh, we're trying to get, uh, a diversity of, of, of ideas, a diversity of people, uh, internationally, a, a, everything. So, uh, we really want to be able to showcase this as, uh, as a way to talk about the future of, of space, uh, from international perspective, government, commercial, all of that, and the sustainability of and it. And in a multidisciplinary forum, right? Yeah. Uh, we've uh, had that, yeah. artists to scientists to pol policymakers. You know, I think that kind of diversity is important too. You know, one of the things that I think is critically important about when we talk about diversity and we, we, we bring in the, the concept of diversity of thought and cultural differences and stuff, it's particularly important, say, to a country like, like Japan or any country that is homogeneous. Um, when they hear me talk about race, that's foreign, you know, because they're, that, that really isn't an issue there, but, but cultural differences or differences I remember going from from uh, Okinawa back to Tokyo, and man, it's like going from from you know one country to the other because at one time they were separate countries. They were you know the Kingdom of Ryukyu and then the the Empire of Japan, and and they were forced to to come together again. And it's really important there for them to understand the cultural differences between those parts of the country and. You know, my wife Jackie and I had an opportunity to travel all over the country in the two years that I was the deputy at U.S. Forces Japan and to see the stark cultural differences. Um, a country like China, uh, even even more diverse. Um, and so I think the lessons of, of trying to understand other people's ideas and other people's culture and letting that 
um, kind of feed you and help you to, to mature and develop uh, is really, really, really important as we try to reach around the world and, and bring people together. Uh, it's such a great message. And, you know, it's, it's what you say about Japan is so true, being the homogenous culture it is. But, you know, uh, you've maybe seen Naomi oh, Osaka, yes, yes. Uh, the tennis player. She's, she's actually doing a lot to bring awareness to these issues here, uh, being a biracial, binational uh, person who's Japanese nationality um, to, to yep. bring awareness to this. It's great to see that kind of stuff, too. Well, this is, I could keep, we could keep talking about this topic. There's so many topics that we can just keep talking about. But I wonder, off of this, um, we talked about all of these aspects of different voices and diversity. I wonder, bringing it back to, to space a little more, Charlie, how about the, um, the commercial side of it? Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the international, uh, the government getting diverse opinions uh, to form space policy. How about the commercial take on it? And this is obviously close to to our heart being a commercial, international yeah. commercial company, uh, what role do you see the commercial sector playing uh, in the future of space? That is an area where I think the U.S. Play, is playing a critical role in helping other parts of the world that the term commercial doesn't make sense. It doesn't ring a bell to them. And I, I always think about the difficulties we had with, with our European partners, the, the folk in ESA, when you talk about commercial space, because they are so nationalized across Europe, where the aviation industry, the space industry, even though they may call something a private company, they're so heavily subsidized by the government that they don't they don't relate the the term commercial doesn't really ring a bell with them, or at least it used to not. I I think we've helped to educate them on the critical importance of letting your industry take a lead role um, sometimes in not it not just in in the you know the planning the design and building of systems but but have a seat at the table in making decisions about the direction in which you're going to go some countries do it much better than others but but we still continue to work and help some of our partners understand what what we think it really means when you talk about commercialization but i you know, we are as good as we are today because of the introduction of what I consider to be commercial space, allowing the the private sector um, to hear what we what it is that we need in terms of a capability, and then turning them loose, letting them go off and talk about it among themselves, come back to us with a plan or a recommendation on how to how to achieve that capability, and then and then paying them to do it, and and that's I think that's why. Uh, human spaceflight in particular has been so successful here post-shuttle. Charlie, I'd like to, you know, point off of that. Um, the next step is utilization of commercial services. It's one thing to build a commercial community, but to have a commercial launch opportunity from U.S. soil. That was so amazing to see last year. Um, and there's all sorts of new commercial services not just your traditional satellite communications Earth uh, observation, but satellite servicing is now a commercial service. I'd love to, you know, uh, hear your your thoughts on th that commercial human spaceflight uh, from U.S. soil last year. The the yep. the, the amazing um, uh, you know step off of U.S. soil that was taken, and just the building out of commercial services writ large, uh, so the government can use them. 
Yeah, you, you, let me let me rather than go to human spaceflight. I think you named you named an ex, an excellent example of how we hope government um, private sector should work together. You know, um, during my period of time during my time as a NASA administrator, we really really tried hard. NASA did to develop uh, on-orbit servicing capability. We we were the first to fly a demonstration on shuttle way back in 1983. Um, uh, it was Kathy Sullivan and Dave Liesma did a spacewalk and and um, took a container out that had just a, a plain old liquid in it and some hoses and stuff and connected one container with a liquid to another container that was empty out in the payload bay in the microgravity of space to demonstrate that, yea, verily, you could do a controlled transfer of liquids from one uh, container to the other. That was, and then we, in time, we started um, experiments where we actually would, uh, would, would be able to make electrical connections or mechanical connections. Um, and, and then we started moving on to doing it robotically as we thought about uh, on-orbit servicing because we wanted to be able to do that robotically, but we just, we couldn't get the support from the Congress to take it the full way to develop a you know a vehicle that could fly and do it. The good thing was the private sector took the technology that we developed and learned the lessons that we had learned on station and later on the International Space Station. And today there you know Northrop Grumman, there are several other companies that that are actually flying commercially provided. Uh, on-orbit servicing robots or on-orbit servicing satellites. And there is a mission that is, if it hasn't been flown yet, but scheduled to be flown pretty soon, where Northrop Grumman's going to take their on-orbit servicing satellite and go up and, and refuel a, 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 an Intelsat, an old Intelsat satellite, that the only thing that's keeping it from being functional is it's out of fuel. And so they're going to demonstrate the capability to do this. And, and that's actually what the government should do. They should develop the technologies and demonstrate the, the, the general principles and then step aside, uh, hand it off to, to uh, commercial entities and let them do it for business, because that's, that's not the government's place. Uh, you know, we should not be competing with the private sector. I would love to see orbital machine shops all over the place. <laughs> no kidding. Well, you, you know, and, and you're going to see that today we have three different 3D printers on the International Space Station. Um, one of them uses the, the, we started with just using ribbons of plastic because we didn't know how to control the powder that, that is used in conventional 3D printing down here on Earth. And, and we finally came up with a technique for, I think we spin the, the, the table or whatever it is so that the powder is controlled by centrifugal force and guided into a tube such that you can put it on the, uh, on the forming table when you use the laser to heat it up and, and do the print, the actual printing. But, but in time, uh, you know, we're the third printer right now is a bioprinter and it's one that we use to, to use, to take microbes, and, uh, and other material that has been taken uh, from animals without destroying the animal and used as the feedstock to, to literally print um, food. And so those kinds of things, we're going to get eventually to what some people refer to as massless launch, um, where 
you don't need a big heavy lift vehicle because all you're taking to space is the feedstock, the, the material that you're going to use to to build a satellite. And you're going to 3D print the components and then the astronauts or robots on orbit will assemble them. I happen to be one who believes that when we go to Mars in the 2030s, um, when humans finally set foot on Mars, they're not going to have to build anything in which to live because we would have by then sent a, an army of robots up to burrow into the Martian soil and build underground habitats um, to use Martian soil to protect us against radiation. So, you know, everything you see nowadays, everything you see nowadays is, is built on the Martian surface. Um, and we've got some people, it, both from academia, but from industry, who have already been been building out in the Mexico desert and other places, burrowing into the desert or into, into the sides of mountains and stuff and building underground habitats uh, that, that sort of simulate what we think can be done on Mars. And, and robots already build buildings down here on Earth, so there's no reason we can't do the same thing up on, on the Martian planet. Yeah, it's going to happen, and it's and it's starting on station, mm -hmm. as as you said. Um, this I, <clears throat> Issues of servicing relates, of course, mm -hmm. to sustainability uh, and what, what uh, Northrop uh, Space Logistics di is doing with the Intelsat, as you mentioned. Uh, what we're planning to do with our first missions is on is on in-orbit servicing uh, initially for debris removal. Uh, and so I, I, uh, what, what is your thought on the sustainability of orbits and how we can uh, use this in-orbit servicing uh, capability uh, to, to make sure that we're protected? Both yeah. things like the ISS, where we have humans, and the proliferation of satellites. I mean, you were on one of the most famous uh, in-orbit servicing <laughs> missions with the Hubble Repair. Uh, so I, I wonder, yeah, your, your thoughts on, on that, sustainability on this issue. When you talk about sustainability, and at least when we're talking about low Earth orbit, um, it's getting really crowded, and it's getting crowded with a lot of orbital debris. And it's just a matter of time, you know, if we don't do a better job of cleaning up uh, before, we, before we potentially have a, a pretty bad accident where we have a collision between some just a debris field and, a, and an orbiting spacecraft. Um, the, the interesting thing there is because governments have been remiss in doing their duty to try to mount a campaign to do orbital debris cleanup, the private sector is turning to it. You mentioned your company. There are a number of companies over in, in Europe, particularly Scandinavian companies that that are looking at a lot of things, whether they're dragging a, an electromagnetic, an electromagnet around low Earth orbit, or, or something that looks like something from uh, James Bond, you know, that goes and gulps it up. But the private sector sees that it's a matter of survival for them uh, to make sure that the that the environment in which their satellites and their spacecraft are operating is as safe as possible, and that means cleaning up the environment, not just not just miti mitigating debris the way that we've been doing for the last 50 years, where we said, okay, if you're going to send a satellite to space, it's got to have sufficient fuel to either, when its useful lifetime is over, deorbit it into the ocean where it doesn't hurt anybody in orbit, or, or raise it to a parking orbit where it'll stay for 100 or so years. Um, mitigation is okay, but still the, the amount of debris is accumulating. So it's important for for us to begin to remove some of the debris. And it looks like the private sector is really taking it on in earnest. So, Charlie, here in the U.S., 
Um, who should be the lead department in our agency? I feel it's a bit of a nose game right now of un- <laughs> fear of unfunded um, uh, mandates. So, yeah, what yeah. are your thoughts on? And you know, how do we how do we make sure we have a consolidated interagency uh, agreement on space traffic management, on active debris removal? Just these these higher policy pro- uh, problems that we're facing today. Well, I mean, you know, if if you look at the the work of the National Space Council in the Trump administration, um, th- there were some good things done. A designation of the Department of Commerce uh, as the lead agency for for space traffic management. Um, I, I was just reading an article today where the Department of Defense, mainly the U.S. Space Force, is pleading with the Department of Commerce to you know, get stepping. Um, we're going to help you take this responsibility over from us for space traffic management so that we can focus more on on tracking of things like orbital debris and giving people warnings so that we can avoid collisions and the like. But but it's becoming just an, an enormous job for for our Air Force and now the U.S. Space Force to do tracking and, and um, you know, impact avoidance and space situational awareness and everything. And so they even they are supporting turning the responsibility for space traffic management over to uh, to a civil agency. And, and the Department of Commerce is the organization that's been chosen to do that. So, you know, the administration just needs to not to push them, but tell them, get on, get off, get off the stick and do your job. And then maybe some appropriations with that. Yes, that would help. Now, that, that's 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 yeah. always uh, the issue. Congress is is famous. Our Congress here in the United States is famous for, and you use the term charity, you know, issuing mandates with no money, and um, and agencies do the best they can, but but they can't operate without funding. Yeah, take away that yes. on. We want funded yes. mandates for these things. Um, so you talked a little bit, Charlie, about the, the um, Space Council and uh, the previous administration space policies. They were pretty active. Uh, you know, set, well, they did seven of their, um, uh, what were they, spot policy pronouncements? Yeah, space um, policy directives. SPDs, thank you, Charity. Yeah. Directives. Yeah. So, I mean, a bunch of them. So they were, they were quite active on the space arena. So uh, I don't want to get too political, but I, I, I do, I am wondering, you can't, you can't disconnect space from politics. And so your thoughts on, on overall, like, uh, how the space policy was in the previous administration and then what you're, what you're hearing or what you're thinking about how it's going to be, uh, in the Biden administration coming up. Uh, I know there's still a lot of uncertainty in terms of, of leadership, uh, but, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are there. I have no idea what what way they're going to choose to go, but, but I, the way that we operated when you and I were in NASA together, we didn't have a space council, but we had an incredibly strong Office of Science and Technology Policy, headed up by Dr. John Holdren. And so my objection to having a space council when I was the NASA administrator was I didn't I did not want another layer of bureaucracy between me and the president. I wanted to be able to go over and go right to the executive office of the president if I had an issue. And I very seldom had an issue, but there were two or three times when I had something that only the president was going to decide. And um, and I had no problem whatsoever going to the cabinet secretary and to Dr. John Holdren, the president's science advisor, and getting them to support my talking to the president. We went in and, and problem solved, you know, but 
um, it depends on if we have a space council, it depends on how the how the president plans to use it and how they divide the responsibility for um, representing the president at the either at the space council level or at the the director of OSTP. And, and if you've got a if you've got a really strong office of science and technology policy, I don't think you need a space council. But but if if it's not going to do that, then maybe a space council is the right way to go. The good the the good thing about the space council is that it does act as a um, a universal clearinghouse and and point of integration for national security and civil space, and um, that was something we the only place we could do that during the Obama administration was in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. But but I found it very difficult to convince people there um, that we had a problem, you know, that 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 national security space and civil space were not necessarily in sync to the level they should have been. It really came out with my very first budget, the 2011 budget, when NASA's budget uh, called for us to to um, phase out of the shuttle, <clears throat> stop the Constellation program, and turn human spaceflight over to the private sector, uh, and for NASA to go off and work on a, uh, an engine to replace the Russian RD-180. Because there had been no, no prior discussion between NASA and the Department of Defense and, and national security space, we were about to destroy the solid rocket industry uh, in one fell swoop. Since shuttle and the solid rocket boosters use more solid fuel, you know, more solid propellant than all the other users of solid propellant combined over the course of any year. And uh, that factor had not even been considered in, in, in drafting the president's budget. Uh, so you would hope that a, that a national space council with the secretary of defense sitting in and the, the, Secretary of the Air Force with the heads of the U.S. Air Force and the Space Force, uh, along with the NASA administrator, would have said, well, let, let's think about this for a minute. Do we really want to do this? Here's here's what we're going to do to the um, to the supply chain in the United States. And, and that discussion was not had. And, and we almost made a dramatic mistake. There's so many good lessons learned that I'm hopeful that we can uh, take and, and learn and, and improve upon in future um, policy decisions like that, Charlie. Um, yeah. I'm 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 aware of the time, and and I was just wondering if if you have your crystal ball with you, I'd like <laughs> you to look into the crystal ball for us. <laughs> and I've got a, a a quick like oh no, I don't know if it's a quick question, but we are a space future focused podcast. And we were wondering what your three predictions about what the space ecosystem is going to look like in 2035. You gave us one already. You, I think you're expecting to have humans on Mars, but I'm yes. wondering if you have a couple other predictions of the space yeah, ecosystem I, in 2035. And I, I'm not going to call these predictions. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I will just say based on the work at hand and, and things that have been funded, Give or take, um, I I think that in the next, well, when we launch the James Webb Space Telescope this year, hopefully, 
Um, it's going to revolutionize again the fields of astronomy and astrophysics. I mean, Hubble blew the fields away. I mean, we had us rewriting textbooks. Um, we're going to go through another phase of rewriting textbooks because James Webb is going to allow us to see far more distant than Hubble was ever able to do. It's going to revolutionize our understanding of our universe, I think. And it'll, it'll answer some questions about some of the 3,000 plus exoplanets that have now been discovered that, that we think may sustain life. It's going to actually enable us to tell what the atmosphere of those ex exoplanets is like. So, so that's one of the things that I, that I think, unless something really bad happens, we, sh we should see in the next, uh, from launch to full production or full uh, operation should happen in the next five to 10 years. Um, in the field of aeronautics, uh, NASA's blazed the trail for um, what we call quiet supersonics. Um, and I think we've got a number of private companies now that that are already building um, supersonic airplanes with with much lower noise signature than ever before, and um, and a lot of that is due to the the data that NASA collected in their early research with a quiet supersonic airplane um, utilization of uh, uh, autonomous systems for for aviation. We talked about space traffic management. Um, UAS traffic management is, is emerging as more and more critical where we find ways to control the, the um, uncrewed systems that are flying around, little miniaturized drones to giant drones carrying people and things and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's just around the corner. And I, and I, think, I think we're going to see great success with it. Um, when you come back to human spaceflight again, like I said, I, I think we're going to, my hope is that after we get uh, men and women back on the moon, that we we don't decide that we want to stay there for a long period of time before getting the courage to venture off to Mars. I I hope we'll we'll use the rest of this decade, the decade of the twenties, to do whatever touches we need to do on tech on technology, and and then be off to Mars in the twenty thirties. We could potentially have humans in the Mars ecosystem. In the mid 2030s, I think it's going to be like getting to the moon. I think it's going to be the end of the decade by the time we physically put humans on the surface of Mars. And and for me, a really good indication of whether or not we're serious is that we begin to, we really do begin to think about um, how do we use robotic systems to their fullest extent to um, to optimize the success of humans. On the surface of Mars, by by getting rid of the high risk operations early on of going in there and trying to build habitats, humans don't need to do that. We don't even do it on Earth. So why why put put astronauts at risk by having them do it on the Martian surface? Another thing will be with the Mars 2020 rover and doing some of the uh, what we call in situ resource um, operations. The Finding that we have a way to extract material that, that can be used either for propellant or building material or a variety of things like that with the Mars 2020 rover and some landers on the, on the moon. Um, I, I think those will be signals that we're serious about, about sending humans and trying to make, make the planet ready for them so that, uh, so that things are in pretty good shape by the time they get there. Um, 
you know, there are the other areas of science. My my biggest hope, and this is a hope, not a this is definitely not a crystal ball, but it's that with the phenomenal Earth observing satellites that have been developed over the last twenty years or so, we are now understanding more and more about our our Earth environment um, and the things that are that are lending uh, or or helping deteriorate our 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 air and ocean. And um, I'm hoping that we'll that policymakers will use the myriad data that's being provided to make really smart policies to curtail the heating of the planet, so that if we don't reverse it, we at least can stop the heating at the level uh, that we find ourselves right now. Otherwise, I'm not sure we're going to survive. Yeah, and that, you know, to to call out another um, beloved colleague who has, has left us, Mike Freilich, was driving so much of that conversation, Charlie. Oh, unbelievable. It, exactly. He was a master. And so having having that uh, his his namesake satellite in orbit now uh, to help us understand it more is, is really is really essential. So uh, thanks so much, Charlie. I'm, I'm going to close out with a question. And you said you didn't read our questions in advance and I sent them in advance so I wouldn't, so you could have a preparation on this one, but <laughs> since you didn't read it, we're putting you on the spot. I'm ready. Right? Are you ready? So this is, this is one we've asked a lot of, a lot of our guests. Um, a big part of space, of course, is the uh, is the public aspect, the uh, the the movies and the TV shows. So there's been so many cool movies and TV shows, especially recently. So if you could be or uh, who you admire the most of any character from a space movie or TV show, who would it be and why? Ooh, well, if you talk oh, about wait, a, it was a good one. Wait, no, did you say a space movie? <laughs> yeah. Space, okay, science, uh, fiction, science fiction, space, you know, movie, my, or TV show. Uh, because yeah. I'm a Martian, my I would want to be Mark Watney. I, I would, oh, wow. I, 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 Charity, I would what did I say when I answered the question, Charity? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, for one answer. thing, I'd love to be as smart as he was. I mean, he's scary smart. Yeah. And, um, oh, I'll tell you somebody else, uh, a, a contemporary person who's not in the movies yet, uh, Christine Koch. Or, uh, you, know, you know, some of the women who have flown on station here of late, yeah. uh, they just blow you away, you know, with their brilliance and the like. But I, but since you asked me the question about a movie or a book, um, I'd be Mark Watney. No, that's a great one. I actually had the same one and I, I loved, you know, his, uh, his, his never give up attitude. Exactly. And that's kind of what we need in space, right? We, it, your whole point, Charlie, about, um, don't say it's too hard. You, yep. you got to try it and you got to get it done. And, uh, that's great. But, it, but it's great to bring out the real life examples too. And, and thanks for bringing up somebody who's, oh, who's a real life inspiration. So we want to, yeah, we want to talk about them too. And, uh, uh, not to, not to pump you up too much, but speaking of real life inspirations, thank you as a, as a real life inspiration for us. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Charlie. It's been really cool. Oh, Charity and, and Chris, I cannot thank you all enough for letting me be on the show. And um, I, I look forward to to following you when you start broadcasting. I'll be I'll be number one on your podcast list. Oh, that's well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're we're really looking forward to to this as well. Um, having guests like you on, you know, gives us renewed enthusiasm. Not that we don't have enough, right, Chris, <laughs> about this business, but I'm, you know, I have to say, you know, after you, they're not predictions, they are going to happen. Just a really amazing slate of science and exploration coming up for us. So I uh, just want to thank you for your time today sharing. 
your experiences. Well, thank with us. you. And I, I owe you a beer. Since you're here in DC, I owe you a beer whenever we get out from under this COVID cloud. Oh, that or, would be lovely. Or wine or whatever you drink, <laughs> a glass of milk or something like that. <laughs> Sounds good. It's great. Well, hope to see you in person sometime soon, Charlie. And, uh, and thanks again. Okay. You all take care. Stay safe. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.